Yeah, you can read it from my tweet on the same subject. Uh, I'm not well going to do week. that. I don't read your tweets. Oh, like, I'm not going to break. I'm not going to break you precedent. You have to unmute James um, first and then read the tweets. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much, too much trouble. <laughs> Welcome to episode 16 of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I'm your host, Charles Starr. We have a big, great panel uh, coming back to you. Uh, we're going to do everything in alphabetical order. And so we start today uh, with Ames. Hello. And everyone say hi to Christina. That's right. You better say hi. <laughs> yep. Everyone at home. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and she's like, I actually envision people at home saying hi to their uh, <laughs> to their listening device. And that's what you should be doing. Uh, so everyone say hi to James. Hey, everybody. And last but not least, Mark. Hello, microphone. Yes. Uh, please do speak into the microphone, not, not, not to the microphone. All right. So uh, busy week, as always, in everything. Uh, not anything really directly Cohen, but of course, we'll get to Trump world later. But I don't want to start there. I want to start with one of the big cases that I think everyone uh, read about earlier, which is Masterpiece Cake Shop, otherwise known as the Christian Baker case. Uh, and their uh, and the refusal to uh, to bake a cake for a same sex wedding, and of all the sort of weird things for a Supreme Court case announcing religious observance to come down to, in the end, this whole stupid case comes down to whether you consider a wedding cake a an artistic expression or just another commodity item, which is just sort of a crazy way to look back on, you know, over 200 years of First Amendment jurisprudence. I believe it all came down to whether or not Christians are oppressed, to which the court gave a resounding probably. Well, (laughs) right. I mean, I think I think uh, (laughs) yeah. we should start with the the majority opinion, uh, which was fascinating. Well reasoned. I always love reading Justice Kennedy, uh, really grounding his analysis in the the facts. Justice Kennedy, real friend to the gays, real friend to the gays. Yeah. Which is clearly what happened is they said, Justice Kennedy, you wrote Obergefell. Uh, We want to find in favor of the baker in this case. So it's on you, buddy. Uh, you reason your way out of that one, baby. And uh, what they ended up doing is they ended up pinning it all on allegedly discriminatory statements made by the commissioners at the, of the Colorado uh, Human Rights Commission during I, the initial hearing of this I case. I disagree that they pinned it all on that. I mean, well, it was the start the of their takes. analysis, I think. That I mean, but I think that's sort of I think that sort of is where they come out. I mean, that's that's kind of where they get the votes from Breyer and Kagan, yeah. right? Breyer and Kagan, Breyer and Kagan turned it from a five four into the Donald Trump Jr. certified overwhelming seven two, mm. uh, and they get they get it seven to two because Breyer and Kagan basically say. 
we think on remand the bakers should lose. (laughs) (laughs) But we are willing to buy for right now that in general people should be less rude to Christians. (laughs) Um, You know, that they had it hard. They, I mean, they, they string, and I, it's kind of weird and kind of risable <laughs> because one of the things that the that Kennedy and, you know, Kennedy kind of pops a monocle and Gorsuch full on faints dead away <laughs> because all over this because troll, basically, right? This. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the basically, of because, one of, because one of the commissioners said. Uh, that using religion to uh, I wait I may I may as well read it directly because paraphrasing it uh, doesn't do it justice. This is this is what the commissioner said. I would also like to reiterate what we said in the hearing or the last meeting. Freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, I mean, we we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to to use their religion to hurt others. Okay, so he's, then, he's wait, right, but like maybe not something you want to say on the record. No, no, no. <laughs> but you see, I disagree. This is what this is Kennedy's first sentence responding to it. To describe a man's faith as one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use. Which is taking the quote out of context. Yes, exactly. He didn't use the religion, right? He said, if your religious underpinnings are in service of overt discrimination or hatred, then you are then you are straying from the principles you are purporting to espouse. And because you are specifically pinning it on religion, that is what is despicable. OK, so just to like wind it back, like everyone knows like what this case is about, like a, a, a man, a, a two uh, men wanted a baker to like make him make them like a like a cake for their wedding. And he said no. And all of this sort of snowballed from that. And right. I think there's somebody else who like wanted, who who tried to get a baker to make like anti-gay, like homophobic cakes as. Yeah. Which yes. I mean, Rick clearly in response, yeah, clearly in response, right. well, clearly in response to this Colorado human rights commission or whatever right. it's exactly called in response yeah. to them ruling against masterpiece mm-hmm. cake shop. This guy starts going in and trolling and asking for Bible cakes yeah. with like the no, yeah. With like the no parking sign, no, except it's like, so like, yeah, like, so like one of them, he, so this guy, um, Jack something or something, Jack. No, it's something yeah. Jack. Jack yeah. is the last name. He, uh, requested the image of two groomsmen with the, with the red X. He wanted it decorated with the word God loves sinners. And <laughs> while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he wanted another one that said homosexuality is a detestable sin. Leviticus eighteen twenty two. So, I mean, clearly a this, cheerful guy, message this wasn't cake. done in any sort of good faith. This guy going in here, he wasn't really interested in getting these cakes. He was just sort of interested in this very, really childish troll on these cake shops show. Ha ha, look, you're you have to, you know, tolerate my intolerance. 
And basically, it's compared to two people walking into a baker and saying, hey, we'd like to be, buy a cake from you, and him going, <laughs> Which, the distinction is one that Kagan makes in her concurrence, and it's the difference between a baker saying, I'm not going to make that cake, and I would never make that cake for anybody because it's very, very rude and hurtful, versus someone coming in saying, I would like a cake of the kind you normally make, and the guy saying, well, no, because you are a member of a protected class who I don't want to, who I want to discriminate against. So it's a very easy distinction to draw, and uh, four or five justices of the United States Supreme Court cannot fucking do it. It's amazing. It's really all, almost all of Gorchus's dissent is about this. How how shocked he is that. They didn't take this guy, this Jack person seriously for, for his well, concurrence. Right. Well, his concurrence, his concurrence. Right. I'm sorry. His concurrence. Um, I think I think one of the more interesting things, which is a maybe, which I think it's possible. Like, I still hold out hope that Kennedy is persuadable because, like I said, a lot of it comes down to whether you consider the cake an expression or a commodity item. And there was kind and the decision really, the way Kennedy writes it comes down a lot to the way the commission was like rude to religion in a very sort of what he considered direct way. So it ends up being that he does. They never have to consider that point. Yeah, have to. Right. Right. And so but the reason I think it matters is because when they're sort of talking through the other people that Masterpiece Cake Shop has refused cakes for. Right. He's like, he hasn't done this for a gay wedding and he did that. And then someone came in and just wanted cupcakes. Right. You know, not everyone has a wedding cake anymore, despite Gorsuch and Thomas spending a lot of time about how everyone has a fucking cake. Right. A, a lesbian couple came in and they said, we just want cupcakes. And he's like, no, nah, no, <laughs> I will not make you cupcakes for your wedding. And that was footnote four of Ginsburg's descent, where he's like, they won't even serve like for a gay wedding, even if it's a commodity item. And that pushes it way too far. So the the intermediate step here is that all these uh to build on Christina beginning to lay out the procedural posture is that all these requests to make cakes get declined by the bakers and those all or people complain about that. And it goes before uh, an administrative tribunal that Colorado set up to enforce Colorado civil rights law. And as James, as, as James said too, that only Colorado civil rights law protects the right to be not discriminated against on the basis of your sexuality. It does not protect a right to troll. So that's another thing that they're just sort of ignoring in the whole process and making some sort of moral equivalence between trolling and, you know, a normal loving gay relationship. I mean, I think one of the ways to look at how how Colorado handled this case is to go back to Tarek's big maxim, (laughs) which is that the asshole loses. Right. (laughs) When when a couple comes into the bakery and is like, we'd like you to make us a cake. And he goes, no, not for that. Right. I won't do that at all. I won't even talk about it with you. I won't let you I won't even discuss the idea of just buying one off the shelf. You've already told me it's a gay wedding. We're done here. And in the other case, this guy is like walking in in like a full fucking cosplay. (laughs) And and he's like, bake me a cake saying, fuck you. 
And they're like, eh, no, <laughs> no, that's kind of grotesque. <laughs> and we don't want to, we don't, we think you're an asshole on a very individual level, right? Like one of them was like, we make Bible cakes all the time. <laughs> right? They're very classy. I love Bible cakes. They're like very nice because looking, but I don't want to I make Bible cakes all the time. They're beautiful. I do a great job. I make great cakes. <laughs> I make Bible cakes. I don't make Bible cakes that say, Everyone who doesn't love this book can go straight to hell. <laughs> Charles, okay, thank you, by like, the way, for gratuitously picking a fight with the Rick and Morty fan base online, which I'm sure yeah, are going to like yeah. show up at our houses now and, you know, <laughs> demand and, to be and released. Completely, un- completely uninformed, too. I'd rather eat glass than watch a second of it based on who loves it. Okay, so I know that, like, I mean, I know that, like, I, I think I know where you guys come down on, like, whether this was a good opinion or not. I, Hot Take Express, think it's a fine opinion. <laughs> I think I, it's, I, I think it's, but the, the, the reasoning to me Kennedy was sound, not being able to read all, is fine. Like, assuming that there was more to go on, that they were actually being discriminated <laughs> against as religion, that's fine. And I'm honestly fine with this Supreme Court not tackling this question. I'm fine with them dodging it. Thank you. I just, I just really, yeah, go I, on. I don't really like the implication that like you have the right to force people to make art. And to me, like making a cake is art. Like I don't see it as a commodity. I don't see it as a service. Okay. So Christina's off the podcast, but also (laughs) so you, you basically what you're saying is you read the justice Thomas opinion and you were like, okay, Phillips considers himself an artist. The logo for master cake shop is an artist's paint palette with a paintbrush and Baker's whisk. no, this I is just literally all in the Thomas concurrence, by the way, for the, for the <laughs> yeah, listeners. Just, just all Laid the different out things they'd be like, I'm an artist, including putting a brush in his logo, which I'm going to put a brush on my PS4 because when I game, that's art. I, I, oh I also appreciate his, his, real his repeated class. citation right. to <laughs> sweet invention, a history of dessert, to, uh, as was dispositive <laughs> in this case, in Thomas's view, was dispositive in determining whether what this was actually an uh, expressive work of art and not, not a commodity. Guys, I, I feel like we're shutting down the one woman on this podcast and how she feels about weddings, and I think that's problematic. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, no one should get married because I'm not married yet. Second of all, <laughs> cake is art. But I mean, I, mean not, I, I, I think I am. I think I do have this weird, like, libertarian streak in terms of like what I view a public accommodation as. Like, you know, I, Christina I, is now off the podcast and out of DSA. <laughs> <laughs> I just really I don't I don't like the idea that you could like force someone to make something that they don't want to make like I don't know but well there's all kinds of examples where people are forced to serve people that they don't want to serve for example uh, one of the cases cited was from the 1960s I want to say where someone tried to argue because of my religion I cannot set, uh, let out hotel rooms to black people because mm. of their religion <laughs> wasn't that West Coast Parish Hotel or that's- now. I think that was part of Atlanta. Atlanta. I think. It was oh, one of right. Atlanta cases. And I gotta oh, say, so when, when, when people than making someone a cake, I'm just you know. I don't. I disagree with you, Christina. When I make a guest bed in my guest bedroom <laughs> for people who are driving through Cheyenne, I do it. I do the fucking hospital talk. It's art. It's art when I do it. Talk to anyone who stayed at my house. There's a paintbrush on my front door. <laughs> I want to congratulate the guy at Publix for his MFA <laughs> when he writes happy 90th grandma. <laughs> Summa asterisk, wow. asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Mean- <laughs> There's a famous case from Atlanta where the, the guy who went on to be the governor of Georgia, Lester Maddox, uh, had a family restaurant near the Capitol. And he 
this is the height of the civil rights era. A bunch of black patrons come in and said, we want to eat at your restaurant. And he said, no, absolutely not. I understand that Brown v. Board has come down. I refuse to serve black patrons. And they, uh, and a court said, well, here are your choices. You can either close down your restaurant or you can serve black patrons. And he chose to close it down. And there's a highway named it, named after him in Atlanta. But so here, here's the question for you, uh, Christina. Oh, if God. Lester Maddox says, I believe that, <laughs> if Lester Maddox says, I believe the way I make my sandwiches is that these are, these are work of art sandwiches. Does that, how do to you me, feel? To me, a sandwich how do you feel is the case comes down? That's, okay. Wait, again, you're disparaging what I do because for three years <laughs> I made sandwiches and I was a sandwich artist, Christina. There was a paintbrush on the front door of the dining hall where I made sandwiches. There was a paintbrush. I made them to order. I custom made them. It was part of my religion. It was my religious duty to make those sandwiches. Here's here's I mean, here is to to get to whether to get to whether it's inherent. I think here's the here's how I come down, because I think, Christine, I think you're going a lot farther than I would have. I think there is a spec. I think there's a. I mean, I think no there is there. a fair. There's a, I think that no, but I, but I, but I'm siding with you more than you think I am. I think there is a spectrum between mm-hmm. a pure commodity item mm-hmm. and like the broadest sense of like if they, if they wanted to commission him to make an original design. That is, I mm. think, but it seems like that's what impression. they wanted them to do. No, they it never got that far. Right, this they is the line during said, exercise of the court they, they came in and said, "We would like you to make a cake for our wedding," and he just said right off the bat, flat, "I don't make cakes for same sex ceremonies," which could be a range of you have done X cake before and we saw it at this wedding and we just like something vaguely like that it had a cool color scheme it had a like we don't know what the underlying facts of what they were asking him to do was because he went just gives gave a flat no to that question right and on the other end is the people who came in for cupcakes and he's like i won't even make cupcakes for your wedding and those the way it's described certainly seem like a straight commodity item Right. And so I think I don't think the baker has a great position here. At least at least I think it's an open question on. And, and Charles, to that point, if you um, if you go to the Masterpiece Cakes website, as I did, it was it was linked to in, in the opinion. He, he says <laughs> right at the top on his wedding cake page that he is no longer doing custom designs of any kind. But I would imagine that does not mean he has now decided he is hmm. going to do you know, non-custom wedding cakes for gay couples. Like the cake shop website after he lost in Colorado may have changed and he may have decided at that point to no longer do custom designs because he wanted to stay out of the crosshairs. Sure. Um, of Like while the litigation was pending. So who knows? The Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, website is uh, protecting men married to women. <laughs> 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 Well, you know, I am comforted by the fact that great legal mind Clarence Thomas agrees with me. So, you know, yeah. I have I have yeah. a history on my side here. Yeah. the man, uh, So so now uh, speech is uh, money and cake. That's right. That's right. Spe- money and cake are the two uh, the two big ones. Well, I mean, the main thing is that everyone who's posting like no gays allowed signs in their businesses is absolutely they did. They, they're wrong. They do not understand this opinion. No, it was just they knew the Baker one and they were like, got it. 
done. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Especially, and that especially because, Cruz. like, literally every, literally every opinion from from Ginsburg to to Gorsuch to Thomas is like, you can't flat out refuse to serve gay people. Right. They're like, we acknowledge this. But I also think like uh, James was making fun of Kennedy earlier and there's plenty of reason. Right. In a in a seven to do decision uh, where they basically give the guy the right to not sell uh, cakes uh, to a gay (laughs) wedding. He's Kennedy starts section two a with. Our society has come to the recognition that gay persons and gay couples cannot be treated as social outcasts or as inferior <laughs> dignity or worth. And then it's like you would think the next word would be like a 30 point bold face. But <laughs> right. it's, it's probably like, that paragraph that got Kagan to sign on. I mean, that's why the, that's why the one thing that I ever give Scalia credit for is the way he just would make fun of the way he would when he was dissenting from a Kennedy opinion, he was just he was just mean. So I have a question. Was there like some like backroom stuff that got Kagan to sign on to this? I mean, like it was a yes. strategic like what does anyone know anything more about that? I All you could do is read tea leaves. But I think it's pretty clear from her concurrence that she wrote the concurrence to say how narrowly she yeah. signed mm-hmm. on. Right. Like Kennedy had a section about uh about, you know, the whole nature of, you know, how limited it was because it was about the commission's failure to respect religion in its deliberations, right? That they were just dismissive of religion as a basis for why people would have beliefs. And so Kagan and Breyer were basically like, that's right. Mm -hmm. We agree with you. I think they had to really pretend to be very offended. And they said, we agree with you that this was really beyond the pale when they, when they acknowledged Mm -hmm. historical fact. And just beyond that, like how much anger is work Kennedy works up and, in Gorsuch work up by what well, it's basically just judges or in this case, the civil rights, civil Colorado civil rights mm-hmm. commission, which they were, they were acting as judges for being mean to a party in a case, like it's kind of snide on the record. And, you know, I cannot, you know, as someone who represents criminal defendants, if I had a right. claim every time a judge was snide or dismissive to one of my clients there would it would be a new trial every single time I and mean, that's just not mm-hmm. so it's not the reality of how the judicial system works i mean maybe you can make a case that it should be like that all the time but i i've never seen i've not seen at least many cases like this where just a judge's basic attitude or you know idea that he wasn't taking one side especially seriously or at least giving mm-hmm. off those vibes was you know a, a yeah. constitutional error in a case yeah. seemed very ridiculous. Yep. I I think I think the one other thing that I want to point out is there's uh there's a section in Gorsuch's concurrence where he says uh and this gets to you know some of what we were talking about when we were all telling Christina she was wrong. Uh, the the right. one queer says- <laughs> woman like who's on the podcast right now. By I'm the way, bisexual. Shut up. <laughs> Whoa! What, what is this? Is the, how did we? How did we all of a sudden? What was that Let's last episode of the, <laughs> the last episode of the ADA in uh, on Law and Order? Let's have a marginalized fires. identity off. I'm Irish. You'll be the first slaves. <laughs> all right. Let's. <laughs> 
Anyway, continue, Charles. All right, all right. So he says, so he says, to some, all wedding cakes may appear indistinguishable, but to Mr. Phillips, that is not the case. His faith teaches him otherwise, and his religious beliefs are entitled to no less respectful treatment than the baker's secular beliefs in Mr. Jack's case. And it all comes down to Mr. Phillips, the baker's understanding of his own religion, mm-hmm. which can't possibly be right. Right. Like that can't it can't possibly devolve completely down to that or else all of the prisoners who invent religions where their sacrament requires the service of lobster. Right. Which the courts routinely throw out. Right. It can't be that he says it's religion to me as the end all and be all of what public accommodation means. And even setting that aside, like Colorado civil rights law protects one of those people, uh, protects the gay couple, doesn't protect the guy saying like, I want to make a troll cake. And that should have been the end of the argument. But Gorsuch sees no such dividing line, which is a great thing in our new Supreme Court justice that we'll have to deal with for 40 years. Awesome. I love him. I think he's good, actually. (laughs) My favorite thing that Gorsuch does is he like has to include like 50 billion rhetorical questions in every uh, God, he sucks opinion. so much. It's like like every He's paragraph the starts with a rhetorical writer. question. It's rhetorical questions and like fake sops to being impartial. Just like, and we'll get to this with oh, ethnic yeah. systems as well, but just be like, listen, you may not like what I'm saying, but it's the law. I'm just calling balls and strikes out here and I want to, I'm not going to say what yeah. I was about to say. Yeah. No, it's Judge, he's Judge Smales. <laughs> I've sentenced men younger than you to the death to the chair. I didn't want to do it, but I felt I owed it to him. Uh, Charles, um, I am much too young to get that reference, but I respect yeah. your right to make it. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, for the listener, Charles is referencing a movie called Caddyshack that came out like Caddyshack. 20 years before you were born. <laughs> there is no way you haven't seen that tweeted at you 800 times. My mom just delivered me some wine, by the way. Just everyone um, under the age of 35, he's referencing a movie that Bill Murray was in. Everyone under the age of 40, Bill Murray is an actor who used to be on Saturday Night Live. Everyone on Reddit knows who Bill Murray is. Correct. Come on. Um, Next one. All right. And then and then I guess the last thing is that uh, that that Justice Thomas's concurrence includes the sentence that the court should ask whether in context it would reasonably be understood by the viewer to be communicative. And like like honestly, like honestly, that's 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 First Amendment jurisprudence. Whenever I look at a cake, I think the baker definitely is best friends with whoever is eating that cake. <laughs> I respect Thomas for being like, it's a First Amendment case. Let's go to your bullshit First Amendment jurisprudence. Let's go to what let's go to what's co- expressive conduct. Does the viewer reasonably understand that that's a message? He gets the wrong result, but at least he's like citing cases and like trying to put on an analysis. Whereas Kennedy yeah. is just like. Uh, it's a due process thing. They were mean to the guy. But he never actually, the the words due process do not appear anywhere in the opinion, despite the fact that it's clearly a due process case. I don't, I, that's what, it's the ultimate bullshit dodge of the issue. And the dodge itself is such deep bullshit, but yeah, fine. He got seven votes. He got seven Supreme court justices to reiterate that they stand by Obergefell. That's pretty good for the Trump era. I'll give it to them. It's, I, I hate the Supreme Court so much. I'm so glad that our next topic is another Supreme Court case. I love talking it about is. these idiots. <laughs> All right. That's a good segue, actually. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> We've got it.
Fresh out the gate again, time to raise the stakes again. Fat my plate again. Y'all cats know we always play to win. GNG to the stars, son. Haters took this too far, son. So that's all for you. I'm wiping out your whole team. Out, splatter your dreams with lyrics to shatter your schemes. The badder you seem, the more lies you tell. The more lies you sell. Now by surprise, you fell until my devil got right into my clutches. Um, all right, so, so the next case is one uh, you can actually find. Uh, Peter writing somewhat tangentially on this in Vice. So you can look for uh, look at Vice and corporate underscore names Twitter feed to find his article. But the case is Epic Systems v. Lewis, uh, in which the court once again decided that the most important law in the history of American legislation is the one which allows courts to not do any work. That is the Federal Arbitration Act, which everything else must bend before. Uh, in this specific case, uh, the the plaintiffs were all subject to mandatory arbitration as a part of their employment agreements, and they were forced to waive class actions as part of their employment agreements and the and waive class arbitration. Yeah, well, right. All class, all class proceedings and mandatory arbitration. And so they all argued that this was a violation of the National Labor Relations Act, which specifically prohibits employers from preventing their employees from working in concert in benefit of uh, their rights. And just like every other statute uh, that seems to come before it in the last especially 10 years, but going back kind of to the late 60s, I think, uh, the court said, nope, 5-4, the, uh, the, NLR, the NLRA is not good enough here, and so you cannot uh, have any class arbitration, even though this will mean that all of the kind of things that would come up, like wage and hour suits, where people are getting shortchanged a little bit at a time, all have to proceed individually, which is, you know, once again, just sort of locking people out of the courthouse and shunting the work off of their own dockets. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, in Gorsuch's opinion, which is the majority opinion, uh, he agrees with you, Charles, like all the cases he cites, he says basically in every single challenge, the arbitration act, the arbitration act has prevailed. Uh, the Supreme court really thinks that, I mean, and it, and, you can quibble with whether or not it's correct in the law. I mean, it's it's a legally defensible opinion. I don't think that Gorsuch makes any like ducks the issue or avoids anything in this case. I think he's correct on the law. It's just that mm. the law really sucks. Question. Uh, like, the and there's, federal- there's a dissent which makes a pretty good argument that like you can look at the reasons why the uh, National Labor Relations Act was passed and it can fairly be said to include this behavior of collective class action uh, arbitrations or class action lawsuits. And, and it might be right to include it. And, and uh, you know, I can agree with that, but mostly it's just that the law sucks. I have a so question. the Federal Arbitration Act. I, what? Christina first, though. Um, I didn't read this one. Uh, what is the like? What's what, how did this arise? I just said that. <laughs> yeah, there, are two, there are two. I mean, it's one thing to not read the case. At least listen to the intro of the case. No, like, like the, the actual mean? the law that like is, is sort of governing this case. Uh, like how, the like, Federal well, Arbitration oh, I mean, Act it arose yeah. in the Thank early you. 20th century. Yes. 
as a as a corrective to arbitration agreements, which are agreements to settle a legal dispute out of court in front of a neutral third party. Those sorts of agreements were struck down left and right. So because no they're bullshit, they suck. Because they're bullshit, they're terrible. So the Federal Arbitration Act says, let's not do that. Let's not. Let's let's give arbitration a chance to work. And over so this the, is like to get over the stuff years, out of court, like to yes, the over the years, the Supreme Court has said the Federal Arbitration Act means whenever anyone whispers the word arbitrate, arbitration mandatory. Right. Right. I mean, to, to go to go to what to go to what the dissent says, they're like, look, back in 1925, the f- merchants right. doing business were trying to like move faster than the courts let them move. And so they tried to move out of uh, the court system and have private contracts. And the, one of the things kind of underpinning it there is there's more equity of bargaining power on both sides of a general merchant right. contract. And I don't have any problem and, with arbitrations in that context. I mean, if two yeah, businesses and, and, want to agree to arbitrate, whatever, that's fine with me. And, and the courts were kind of overstepping their bounds in a, in a sort of dumb situation, which is to say the people who would challenge arbitration in those situations is someone would lose an arbitration and then go fuck this and then ask the court not to enforce the judgment. Right. So it was people who agreed to it in an equitable circumstance who then had losers remorse and then tried to duck it. Uh, in the end, but starting in the 19, it really wasn't until the 1960s, which is, you know, a full 40 years after this has passed, that the courts start applying it very broadly in non-mercantile contexts. And they start applying it to to consumer contracts like shrimp crack agreements, which obviously comes later, and to employment contracts. And this all really came to a head like in the last 10 years when the Supreme Court started finding it found holding it to be binding in employment contexts, at which point literally every employer in the country added no arbitrate, you know, arbitration clauses to every employment agreement, including most law firms now. Yeah, though, I mean, it's funny because the law firms are undoing it a little just because they got so much blowback when they were caught. Because there's a more um, equitable bargaining opportunity, where, which there isn't in the rest of the world, which we'll yeah. get to shortly. And, and, yeah. and, I think we, it was and we always want to be looking out, too, for the most oppressed worker class that there is, big law associates. So, so I'm glad that at least <laughs> exactly. they, they are walking it back. And that, that's a win. So I think really this, this whole issue is just kind of mooted anyway. Yeah, I mean, so this is so this is and as we've kind of uh, danced around, I mean, this is the Supreme Court who uh, who basically has never worked a day in their lives, don't have a real job. Uh, Being a judge is not a real job. Uh, Being a judge is not. First of all, all, law law isn't real. Being a judge is fake. Being a judge is fake. Uh, I yeah. So so Christina's going sovereign citizen over here. Yeah. Well, it's not sovereign citizen. It's legal realism. So thank you, bitch. Yeah. Mm. Read some Duncan Kennedy. So you can see in like yeah, read some. That's an official endorsement of the whole podcast. Read some Duncan Kennedy. Google him. Duncan Kennedy, please slide into my DMs, please, God. Duncan Kennedy, go on Mike Dicta. But uh, what what it is is um, basically they they take to heart and they really believe, or at least they say they believe, that like when an employee and employer sit down and make a, 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 a to do an employment contract 
Everything in that contract is a bargained for exchange. Yes. The employee and the employer sit down and say, here's your compensation. Here's your hours. Here's your schedule. Would you like to discuss the way, them? Here, by the way, here's the arbitration clause. And, the, and we, they've, they've designed this arbitration clause. The employee and the employer sit down and they say, I would like to pick these arbitrators. I would like to pick this firm to arbitrate. We're going to have this guy represent you in the arbitration. It's, it's just a willful like misunderstanding of like how employer-employee relationships work. And it plays out not only in this case, but in every other employment case that ever gets up to the Supreme Court. It's infuriating. And I don't, I, I don't know how you stop it because, like we said, like the Supreme Court is made up of people who have never worked a day in their lives, never will work a day in their lives, and probably don't know anyone who has to work a day in their life. So it's... it's Chairman, Chairman of the Fascism Forever Society is work. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> this is. I can't believe I'm talking to like the. These are like the four people I know with like the softest hands this side of mine. <laughs> are you complaining about other people not working? Charles, it's a I'm, job. You're it's getting work. so. I'm getting. I I just earlier I talked about how I made sandwiches for three years. I also worked in a warehouse for two years. I have non-legal experience. You. <clears throat> I'm also, not going to say what I was about to I say. I am recording this from my childhood bedroom, and my mom just brought me some wine. So, <laughs> so, so how dare you, sir? When I was in when I was in high school, I worked in a um, in a toner factory one summer. What? Which What's is like toner? you know, like the, <laughs> Jesus Christ, what, the, like the ink in a printer. Oh. Did, <laughs> like when your printer says toner is low. Okay. What Listen, do you think? Do you think Mark, means? Girls put Mark, toner on their faces to like like make your oh, make yeah, face no. dry. I, I was I oh, was not true, I was not working for L'Oreal. I was working at it. <laughs> at it Christina and, and, uh, has never printed and, and every, out. And every day when I would come home and every day when I would come home and take a shower after work, like black would like ooze off of me in the shower for like. A minute. Mm. And, I, and if Mark, I, there should like, have there should have been a state law that limited your maximum hours right. for fear of breathing in too much toner. Right. Well, actually, and then I would if I coughed, it was like the drain in the shower. I would, I would cough up like a black loogie. You had black <laughs> lung. Yeah. But toner. <laughs> <laughs> ink lung. Got ink lung. Poor poor Mark forced to arbitrate his black lung claim. <laughs> so oh, he God. worked a long shifts in the ink mines. <laughs> I, I just want to get back a little to, to Gorsuch's reasoning because there was one, there were, there were always a lot of sentences that I find really risable. But this was, he just says, allowing judges, this is why the Federal Arbitration Act has to take precedence over the NLRA. He goes, allowing judges to pick and choose between statutes risks transforming them from expounders of what the law is into policymakers choosing what the law should be. And it's just such a bullshit sentence because he's explicitly choosing one okay. and pretending that he's reconciled. So this right. is the genius of conservative judges is they, they use like this weird, mm. like, idea that like law is like this real and an immutable Objective. force and and then bend the law to to like to their own desires. I mean, Originalism is absolutely objective. It's definitely not just picking which story you like from history and running with absolutely. it. I don't know what you're talking and about, it, Christina. And you can't read a sentence like that and, 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 and think that these people are like understand like the law at all. I mean, they don't care. They don't need to care because they've like sort of made this mythology where the law is above man, above themselves, and they could say whatever they want. Yeah. I, I mean, he has all of these things in here 
where I just feel like he puts his thumb on the scale in really dumb ways where he where he does something for the FAA that he won't do for the NLRB or vice versa. Like he says, he says the notion that Section 7 of the NLRA confers a right to class actions seems unlikely when you recall that procedures were hardly known when the NLRA was adopted in 1935, just whistling past the graveyard that employment arbitration agreements were unheard of when the arbitration act was passed in 1925. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's his like idol Scalia also said in a, like a landmark, I want to say it was an environmental case, but it could have been another case that to, he said as a, as a principle of Hornbook law, statutes can apply to situations that arose after the statute was drafted in ways the founders could not have envisioned. Right. Which works for the FAA, which works for the FAA. But what's if it's good for the FAA, it's also good for the NLRA, which means that if people develop like new means of collective bargaining strategy. Yeah, no, but collective bargaining is what he contrasts as being Mm -hmm. normal collective activity. And he then Mm -hmm. uses that to write out the fact yeah, he he then writes out non bargain non union based collective action, yep. which is just which is just nonsense. You know, he just chooses what he like. He doesn't he he's reasoning backwards and pretending that he's being fair minded about the whole thing. Yeah, he says he's applying you know? a, a canon of statutory interpretation and that's what dictates the result. So, you know, it's uh, and I, I just hate his writing. I mean, not just I mean, the, the reasoning is bad, but his style of like, I didn't think that I could hate the style of writing more than Scalia. But this is like <laughs> a goofier, like even less clever version of Scalia, like some of these turns of phrases he used, like this, these two are both on the same page and I really hated them both. One was it's a sort of interpretive triple bank shot and just stating the, and just stating the theory is enough to raise a judicial eyebrow. So Shut I, the fuck then, up, you fucking then, Donald of Math Magic Land asshole. And then another, then right like two paragraphs later, he says, it's more than a little doubtful that Congress would have tucked into the mouse hole of Section 7 of the NLRA's catch-all term an elephant that tramples the work done by these other laws. It's just like... I I appreciate him because he's not he's not clever enough to hide the ball like behind every every time something folksy comes out. You're like, oh, he's bullshitting me right now. You can figure it out immediately when he's trying to bullshit you because he's writing something that he thinks is clever like that whistles louder when he's bluffing. Yeah, that's another really old reference for you. So for everyone under 40, that's a reference to a game called poker. <laughs> no, that's a reference. No, that's a reference to an episode of man. Oh, Jesus oh, God. Christ. <laughs> you should have just taken my joke. And like, oh, no. <laughs> Start, like, it was not poker. I, it was I knew, by the, by no, the end no, of the no, show, was, Charles was going to be referencing radio serials. It was, a, it was a game of poker on MASH. I knew Last exactly week on what the I Phantom. was doing. Somewhere while I was reading this decision, like I, I, I started, I started hearing it in a um, in a Ted Cruz voice. That's and once smart. I started, yeah. I could not stop. It was it was like you know people had the you know conservatives have had this dream of Ted Cruz on the Supreme Court. I think this is it. I mean, I think this is what he would sound like if he were a Supreme Court justice. No, I actually, actually, I don't think so. I think he'd be a much better writer. (laughs) I think I do. I think I think 
Uh, I mean, you could you could even see it when he was trying to get around his like silence on whether the president can pardon himself. He, we're when, talking about pardons. When he actually, I'm so excited. What? No, no, we're not. Uh, uh, but when he, when he when we're absolutely not when he when he wants to talk about the law in a non disingenuous way. There's a reason mm-hmm. why he was a very good Supreme Court oral advocate mm-hmm. when he was the Texas State Attorney General. Solicitor General. Solicitor General. Yeah, when he Solicitor was uh, advocating that uh, you can actually he ban was a, dildos it, and it's fine. It was it was all it was all in the service of terrible now, things. James, James, to be he fair, he also advocated to try to kill a bunch of people through. So yeah, yeah, oh, no, right, no, no, no. Right. Gore- yeah, yeah, yeah. But Gorsuch, it, like I think I've said this before, everything Gorsuch writes you can hear echoing from the inside of a locker, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely like it correct. all, it all has this kind of masked quality where, you know, he just wants to be let out. Radio serials it is, um, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start doing um, like radio lab style, like audio cues where, uh, even saying that out loud, you're off. the <laughs> You can't kick me off. I'm too popular. <laughs> I do want to. Uh, I want to mention before we get off, before we go change subjects, because we haven't talked about this for a little while. I do want to mention that uh, Justice Thomas has a very uh, a long and forthright opinion, saying <laughs> that there's actually only one way that an employment contract, an arbitration agreement, can be held irrevocable, and it's not if it's against public policy. Thanks, Justice yeah. Thomas. And he does make yeah. sure to include. Pause. Please say the word irrevocable again. Yeah. Thank irrevocable. you, Christina. Yeah. Irrevocable. Irrevocable. No, no, no. irrevocable. Yeah. It's irrevocable or irrevocable. Both are correct. What about this irrevocably wrong? Irrevocably. Yeah. So no, that's right. Well, that's that another is, that is, James. But I also James, as someone say, who has been called out many times, that is the only non-correct way of saying that word. I'm gonna. We're gonna brush past <laughs> this, but I do need to say. Uh, it is Justice Thomas actually gets it's like listening to the Hamburglar. Justice Thomas actually gets a one thousand dollar bonus every time he uses the phrase as I have previously explained yes. an opinion. And the reason is that he's constructed his entire own jurisprudence completely Correct. unhooked from anything that just cites his own concurrences and dissents that are all based on an anti-federalist paper draft that a federal society in turn recovered in 1993. It, listeners uh, will think James is riffing, but James is telling the truth. This is true. No, he's a complete, he's, hey, look, as as I have mentioned on previous episodes, that is incredibly true. Yeah, <laughs> Justice Thomas, like, and it's like, because no one, he's famously quiet in oral argument, which means that when he's about to like go into his chambers and write, well, because the first draft of Federalist Paper 71 already squarely answered this question, I see no reason to have oral argument. And you Originalism. can't call him on it because he never, he never asks you a question. So you can't be like, Justice Thomas, I know you're about to go off on some bullshit after we get done here. You can never call him on it. And so he's just built his entire own. I would love to just read his concurrences just to see how his mind works. It's beautiful. I think what's good is that they're internal. Like I actually respect them for being internally consistent while also being totally insane. It's like if someone actually knew how to write a flat Earth science paper, and <laughs> and be compelling. Um, the, but just the last thing that I want to say on this, and then I think we want to move on, just because there's not a lot of time left is Gorsuch pretended to reconcile the FAA with the National Labor Relations Act, but in effect was just like the NLRA doesn't count. (laughs) And at the same time, I think Ginsburg actually reconciles them where she's like, look, the arbitration stands. 
You can force them to arbitrate. That's what the FAA says. But the FAA says nothing about class actions. The NLRA, the NLRA, NLRA came 10 years later, was explicit about collective action by employees in pursuit of their own benefit. And so you can allow arbitration, you can require arbitration, but you can't stop them from having class arbitrations because that that reconciles the rights given in 1935 under the NLRA with the stuff in 1925 under the FAA. And it was like an actual attempt to reconcile those two laws, which Gorsuch only sort of half pretended to do because he's just like, eh. And let's not miss the FAA the, wins all the time. The practical so effect of here. this decision will be to screw workers yet again through the pen of Judge Gorsuch. That's what's going to happen yeah. because you're not going to sue your you're not going to arbitrate with your employer one on one over, you know, ten dollars for every day you've worked. But add up 20 people and that's a lot of wage theft and you can actually get into court and actually or actually arbitrate and get a you know sizable verdict. But under this decision, now you won't be able to do that. Yeah, at least he's not killing somebody. <laughs> hey, yeah. no, you don't have no one has to freeze specifically because of this opinion. All right, the third case. Uh, the third case comes to us from Netflix, uh, kind of Netflix via Wisconsin. Uh, this is Dassey versus Dittman, which hasn't uh, been decided by the Supreme Court yet, but is now there's a petition for certiorari, which is just the formal name for asking the Supreme Court to hear a case uh, with Brendan Dassey, who was the 16 year old uh, cousin in the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, who was convicted of assisting in the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. Uh, based entirely, literally entirely, on his confession. Uh, and the the issue in this case is how you handle juvenile confessions, uh, specifically juveniles of limited intellectual capacity and what counts as coercion in those cases. And, it, like, this is... It's a wild case in part because it is an EDPA case uh, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. We've talked about that earlier uh, and how that affects the way uh, the courts can hear a case. It's a very sort of interesting procedural posture. I'm going to let Mark kind of take the lead on this okay. because it's his field, um, like just in terms of how EDPA plays in the procedural background here. But mm -hmm. in terms of the factual background, he was brought in by the police as a witness and in the course of the interviews of him as a witness, he led on being more involved than they had originally thought he was to the point where he confessed to participating in everything. And, you know, the issue was whether the interview techniques, given his age and mental capacity, uh, overstepped uh, 
what they should have in terms of coercion under the circumstances. Right. Um, you want me to go into Edpa now? Is that? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Just like a, um, just like a quickie on the yeah, difference. And, and in so, so process. yeah. So, I mean, I think what, what makes this case complicated is in, it's a, it's a federal habeas case, which means, so he was, so, so Dassey was convicted in state court in Wisconsin. Um, and when you're convicted in state court of, of a crime, you go through sort of a, um, a suite of state court appeals. You know, you appeal to, I think he appealed to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. In some cases, there's additional um, appeals called post-conviction, where you go back to the trial court and ask for, for certain other things to be reviewed. But the bottom line is you get, you raise you know, a number of issues in state court. Some of them may be state law issues, but of course, many of them are going to be, you know, U.S. constitutional issues and other federal law issues. Um, and then once that is sort of process is done, you go into what's called um, federal habeas, which you may be aware that, you know, the U.S. Constitution protects the, you know, the right of, of, of habeas corpus, the root of habeas corpus. Um, but habeas is controlled by this statute. I mean, it's controlled by decisions as well, but a lot of it is controlled by this statute called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, one of, you know, high points of Bill Clinton's career, certainly. Uh, And it's a statute that really limits in a number of ways how these federal courts, so you start out in, in a federal district court, which is a, like a federal trial court, you raise, um, you raise these federal constitutional issues, but EDPA sort of controls how, how the limitations on reviewing those state court errors. And basically, I mean, there's a lot of legal jargon in there, but this in the statute, frankly, is not really very well, well written in addition to being very, draconian to defendants. It's just, it's confusing in many ways, but it says that you're, they're not going to overturn a state court's decision, whether it's the state court's decision on what the facts were or its analysis on the law, unless it was unreasonable or in the case of law, if it was an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. And I think what that, what that often means, so what that basically means is a state court can be wrong and a federal court is not going to touch it unless it was wrong in a way that was unreasonable. And that is, um, well, I think, right. I think, I think, I think the problem is it's, it's unless it was wrong in a way that the Supreme court has already said was wrong. Right. right? Like back, back in the day, federal courts, and this is what I, what, you know, Clinton and others were responding to is the federal courts would routinely look at state court opinion or state court procedures and find them inadequate and shitty in a variety of ways. And district courts all over the country were throwing out opinions, probably right. correctly. But but people who were really hung up on federalism were like, look, buddy, we're allowed to be wrong in state court. Right. Uh, so you have to. So they limited it to only the Supreme Court right. being able to announce new rules. So you have to uh, you have to basically point to, a, you know, it, it can't be a circuit court case or, a you know, a lower federal court case. You have to say, here's where the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, said that, you know, said this and it shows 
you know, clearly that what this, what the, the way the state court is doing it is unreasonable. And the practical, um, and the practical result of that, like th- this was designed, as, as Charles said, as, as a concession to federalism to let state courts be wrong, but not, you know, not be too wrong. And that was part of the rationale. And the, the other was docket control to stop what the what the Congress viewed as a parade of meritless habeas corpus petitions uh, while giving meritorious ones chance to succeed. In effect, it's it's done nothing to control dockets and it's just killed a lot of probably right. meritorious habeas positions. And one thing I don't, I don't want to overstate EDPA. I mean, I think it's, it's a bad statute. Certainly it's a very bad statute, but in order for EDPA to work at all, federal courts have to be on board with it. I mean, the Supreme court could have invalidated EDPA very early on as by, you know, saying it was a, you know, unconstitutional limitation on habeas. I mean, there's ways they could have interpreted it to make, to make it, relatively meaningless. I mean, you're, when you're talking about, you know, what's unreasonable, things like that, you know, courts, courts have to want this to work in a way that really limits the ability of a, you know, of a state court defendant with a good claim to win. And, and they have chosen, I think by and large federal courts have chosen that path. So it's not, it's not just the law. It's, it's federal courts agreeing to interpret this law in a way that is, you know, the least favorable possible to, to defendants and and wanting this limitation. Right. And then in this case, right, the one, the case that they point to, because the Supreme court has in the past said that, that when, when I'm trying to, I'm uh, now I've already forgotten the name, uh, that the courts have to take special care in the case of right. juvenile confessions because yeah because they're just not adults and they're easier for cops to push around and because they're easier to push around when you're looking at the voluntariness of the confession you don't assume that it's like an adult who can stand up for himself and so there are all these so they're supposed to be more protective And the Wisconsin appellate court kind of mentioned that he was young and mentioned that he was dumb and then just was like, but it was fine because he was there voluntarily. They said he could leave. And uh, and then he said everything anyway. And the the court really in the, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals really, I think, did took some of the things that were actually very. Um, manipulative on the part of police and sort of turn that into a way to make it look more voluntary. Like, you know, the, the officers were very nice to him and like, you know, brought him things and let him, you know, use the bathroom when he wanted to. And they, no pressure. Right. And, and I think one yeah. of them said, one of the cops actually told him, I, I I'm really more like your father here. I'm not like your, your, you're like a police officer. And sure. I mean, that may have all sounded nice, but the idea behind being nice like that was to let this kid know, right, that the thing to do here was to admit that you did this, whether you did it or not. That's the thing that you want. And for a child, especially a child, I think his they said his I, he was borderline intellectually disabled. His verbal IQ was 65, which is, you know, well into the five points, at least into the into the um, intellectually disabled range. 
Um, for someone who's mildly intellectually disabled like that, there's this thing called the called the cloak of competence um, that that uh, psychologists will talk about. For someone who's who's right on the edge like that, they they adopt certain coping mechanisms to um, function in society in a way that may, so they don't let on that they have this disability because they know at a certain level they have it, which is yeah, certainly deference to authority, just in general agreement. They're being told yeah. you must have known this. You must have seen this thing. And the kids thinking there, well, I don't really remember that, but this is one of those cases where I'm not really getting what other people are talking about. So I better just agree. This guy's being very nice. Yeah. He said, he's going to let me go. I'm just going to agree. I mean, that, that. was, just incredibly I mean, cool. like, yeah, I mean, like his his IQ was one of those things where the footnotes fight back and forth about what it actually was. You know, they're like, oh, well, he tested as a 65 when he was like six years old. He tested as an 83 later. He was in mostly regular track classes, but some special ed. And so, like, they try they sort of argue around that. But one of the experts who interviewed him offer like a susceptibility scale, which mm. is to say, how likely is he to agree with you if you push him to agree on something? And they said he was in the 95th percentile of susceptibility, right. which is to say, whatever you told him, he was probably ultimately going to come around on. And then the and then the the state combs through the record to find a couple of wildly sort of incriminating and implausible things like beyond what they had any evidence of. And he refused to do that. Like they're like, we found bullet casings. Did he shoot her? And then he said, yeah, he shot her in the head. And they're like, did you shoot her? And he stuck with no on that. And it's like the only thing he never conceded, but they never had any reason to believe that he shot her in the first place. And the court, you know, the Wisconsin court and the Wisconsin attorneys sort of lean very heavily on that. The fact that he disagreed on one thing proves that all of the other things weren't coerced out of him, even though they were constantly feeding him. To give you an idea of like how they did this and how coercive it is at some point in the, in the transcript, they, they want him to say um, he either shot the woman in the head, the victim in the head, or he saw her get shot in the head. So they start by saying, now did something else happen with her head? And he says, yeah, yeah, we cut her hair. And they said, no, 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 no. Um, was there something else that happened to her head? And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, oh, and the cop says, okay, I'm just going to come out and write and say it just point blank. Did someone shoot her? And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Who shot her? And he says, oh, yeah, he, he shot her. And the cop says, oh, so you shot her. And he says, no, 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 no. And this goes back and forth for like five pages. But they, they get something that they get him to suggest something to acknowledge something that he clearly wasn't willing to or had knowledge of at the outset. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about suggestibility, especially for a young witness. Yeah. And, and I mean, things like the cutting of her hair, mm -hmm. there was never like a single one of her hairs found at the scene like he described in in the room where she was uh where she was raped and stabbed like there's no evidence of a stabbing at all because they i mean it's like a lot of the facts are really horrible there's no evidence of a stabbing because they burned her remains right but there's also none of her blood 
in the room where he allegedly stabbed her, you know, the two of them allegedly stabbed her multiple times and slit her throat, right? All of these things which couldn't be proven except by his testimony. Mm -hmm. There was no DNA evidence there. And there's restraints, but no proof they were used. Right. There were restraints. There was her DNA wasn't on the restraints or the handcuffs, like all of these. And they knew about the handcuffs before they asked him about that sort of stuff. So like all of these things were only available as evidence because of his testimony. And some of the stuff is just clearly nonsense. And so it ends up being a fight over whether like what counts as being too much for a young witness. And back well, like when I talked about this in Weekend Atrocity, when he first won the habeas case in the district court, I was very skeptical that he would win. And the reason I was very skeptical that he would win is because all of the Seventh Circuit cases sound where they did in like keep the confessions sounded worse than his. Right. Like they were the longer interrogations, younger witnesses, more abusive circumstances. And all of those were upheld. And this time I like by the time it got to Supreme Court habeas, he has Seth Waxman writing his papers. Right. Like like at each level, like the quality of work, even though it was really good, even in the sort of state court proceedings by the Supreme Court, they've really, really honed their argument down to focusing specifically on juvenile justice and how interrogation techniques, which are typical for adults Mm. are like really beyond the pale for developmentally disabled 16 year olds. And And so that, I mean, to be, you should not be using, police should not be using these sort of interrogation techniques for anyone who is intellectually disabled. I mean, it's just, it's going to produce the same result for an adult. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's Um, true though. It's an easier hook. Uh, on the, you know, to sort of, to draw a line on juvenile, sure, sure. to not draw a line on juvenile justice. And, and so they, and it's just, they just go back and forth on it a lot, but it just, it ends up being a very compelling case that the Supreme Court should kind of rein in this type of interview technique, because like Ames said, if you read the transcript, the end of it seems inevitable very early on. You know, he just he just is going to answer all of these questions in that way. Uh, We would never allow this kind of thing on like in court. We would never allow that kind of direct testimony of a witness. And I understand that the the concerns are a little bit different when you're talking about investigation versus testimony in court. But like the the reasons that we don't allow like leading questions and these Uh things in a in direct examination is like because you're not getting out what someone actually knows and so on. And so, yeah, judges know all the problems with these kind of questions and what happens with these kind of questions. And they just think when a cop does it, it's fine. Right. Well, I mean, at least it's I mean, part of it is leading questions are okay when it's adversarial, but it circles back to how appropriate is something this adversarial with someone so susceptible to agreement who once you feed him something is going to agree to it. And so I don't know, like I actually I think I think they aren't going to grant cert largely because I think they're just going to duck it and and because 
And one of the things that the that Wisconsin says a lot in terms of why they should not do it is because there's no circuit split. And one of the things that the Supreme Court grants grants cert for is when two different circuits have different rules. And the whole argument being made by Dassey's attorneys is you set out this rule 40 years ago and all of the lower courts keep messing it up. Like nobody does this right except for a few circumstances where they take seriously how vulnerable these kids are. And you should probably set forth a rule that tells these state court judges all over the country to take this really seriously because the chances of false confessions are very high and you're locking a kid up for life. When they screw this, which is it's a good strategy because there are there are like there are other nebulous standards where the Supreme Court will take cert to hone them in and and clarify where something's going wrong. They often do it in a way that's not helpful to defendants. Like uh, they take case after case about ineffective assistance of counsel. uh, And in in my opinion, I think y'all are probably going to agree, make it harder and harder to prove an ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel claim like Harrington v. Richter just a couple of years ago. Um, but so this is a, this is a type of argument they might be amenable to, um, even if it's not a circuit split. The question becomes: Is this a good case to present the argument because of EDPA? And the the one thing he does, I mean, one other thing he does have going for him is he did win. He won at the district court level. Then he which won, is not hard, and not easy. Not, and then he won. He won in the Seventh Circuit, and then there was it, there was a rehearing on Bonk, which. Um, is on bonk is when the entire circuit court, there's, I don't know how many judges on a circuit court, the, the seven, it nine, it varies. In this case, it was seven. seven. It was seven in this case. Some of them but were two recused. Two recused themselves. So you ask, you know, in this case, the state asked the entire court to review the case, and only then did they, did, uh, did uh, Dassey lose, and that's what's, what's being reviewed. Um, and there, and of course there was, a, it was a divided, um, I think there were two dissents yep. from the, at least from the, uh, two dissents for three people. I think it was a four to three, well, four to like three. He won, okay. he won two to one and then lost four to three, like two judges wrote, but three people voted, uh, voted with him. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, so I don't know. The Supreme court can be, can be interesting. Like every once in a while they want to, they want to clean up. You know, especially in cases like they took the death penalty off the table for juveniles. They took life without Mm. parole or they took the death penalty off the table in uh, non murder cases. Mm. And so every once in a while, they you know, there are enough votes to to sort of find a little justice yeah. here. And so I don't know. So, yes. I don't know if this is going to so be. Technically, life without parole is not off the table for juveniles. Like they just have to have yeah. a hearing yeah. to decide whether yeah. they can do it. I worked on some of these cases. It's it's awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, the question I had, one of the things that came up a lot uh, was how much homework federal courts can give to state courts, uh, because one of the arguments that the that Dassey makes is that Wisconsin and courts all over the country kind of will sometimes list the factors. Oh, he's young and it was this and it was that. But they don't take any time to really examine them. Right. They just sort of say it as if like that, like the rote listing of characteristics is their obligation. And then they just rule 
and they can just do it in a very summary way. And one of the main points of Dassey's brief is that is not special care. That is not the great care that the courts are supposed to take when evaluating a claim of voluntariness in a juvenile confession. And the the on banc decision in the Wisconsin attorneys are like, look, you have said many times that you can't give the courts homework. You if you, there is a presumption that anything that they sort of identify as factors they considered and you can't just make them write more. The lack of uh, the lack of a sort of prolix opinion doesn't mean that they were unserious in evaluating the underlying claim. And I just don't, what do you think? Like, I feel like there was a case just like that this term Um, or a case that at least was on habeas. It it was about, can you look at unexplained opinions, right? Is you can look past uh, a summary adjudication to the last explained opinion when evaluating whether it was contrary to or unreasonable application of. Right. But the, um, so robot. that was sort of just that opinion was, ref, was refining. Is that is that Richter? What I'm thinking of is the, it's uh, refining Richter. Yeah. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in so in Richter is basically that if if the state court issues an order that is basically just a like a post sometimes they're called like postcard orders or just you know summary orders that don't really get into any analysis mm. at all, then the federal court reviewing it under the EDPA standard is just sort of, sort of supposed to assume that the, that the state court's analysis, whatever it was, was reason was, was, reasoned. was yeah. reasonable, was, you know, they're supposed to basically view it in the best light they possibly could. Like, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's not exactly the same thing we're talking about here where there was an analysis. It was just sort of weak. But I think that does show the general direction that, the the Supreme Court and the circuit courts are go on this, which is that, yeah, they do not, you know, what's what's a reasonable analysis from the state court. They're they're not asking for a lot, and you know they'll uh, you know assume what they did was in good faith. They're not asking for a, a longer examination, and I think it's it's not what I agree with, but I think you know the Wisconsin. Uh, the, the state of Wisconsin is is probably right there that, um, yeah, generally courts are not asked to do this and maybe they should. And I think, you know, earlier I mentioned, you know, again, EDPA is is a bad statute, but all this stuff about how that's interpreted, that was all invented by the courts. And because they they really like this and court, you know, uh, judges, there are plenty of federal judges who love this you know, being able to kick something on a procedural grounds, which is what EDPA gives them, gives them the tools to do. And if, and if courts felt differently, it would, I think EDPA would have come out much differently, but instead, if anything, what you see is this awful statute EDPA that is then interpreted in this way that makes it even more awful than it looks on this face, which is, you know, what what we're getting at here. It's of a kind with the Prison Litigation Reform Act and a couple other laws where basically Congress gave the courts a license to say, eh, you can kick some of these things. 
if you think that they didn't follow the right administrative process in the in the first instance and things like that, if you think it wasn't a very clear rule of law they violated and sort of over time with the qualified immunity line of cases, just say, hey, you can kick some of this stuff. You, yeah. you don't have to do as much work as you've been doing if trying you, to figure out whether people's rights uh-huh. have been violated. The 1984 crime bill gets a lot of flack for being Bill Clinton's you know, major foray into expanding mass incarceration, and it definitely did that. But yeah, I would, key, I would put EDPA and the prison... Litigation Reform Act uh, as accomplices in that crime. Uh, and these were all passed in like uh, mid 1990s with significant bipartisan majorities. And no one escapes blame, uh, as Mark is saying, not even the courts. Yeah. It's a bummer. Yeah. Yep. And so, I mean, I think if if it falls anywhere, that's where I think. And I mean, if it falls, it'll be because there's no written opinion and it's a, like a, a one line cert denied. But I think where it may fall is if the Supreme Court just doesn't agree that special care means a sort of more written out mm-hmm. opinion. Right. And they just give the Wisconsin, Wisconsin the benefit of the doubt, because you can even see, even though I tend to think that the uh, that Dassey's attorneys have a better understanding of the nature of the the interrogation itself. I don't know that the Supreme Court is going to look at that and say that the the way that the court interpreted that was wholly unreasonable and something that we're going to hang like a new line of uh, Supreme Court precedent on. So I don't know. We'll see. All of these cases end up depressing. Yeah. And I guess we should say it's just a petition for cert right now. And like 95% of petitions for cert do not yep. get granted. Yeah, this will get yeah, be nice. Right. 95% in rising. Nice. Yeah. All right, we're yeah. like an hour and a half. We should probably. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, well, this is the last thing. America the last episode. thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna close it out, of course, with Trump World, and that is originally when this was part of the when this was part of the podcast, it was because we were gonna talk about how the government was moving to revoke uh, Manafort's bail. Cool. Uh, because they made a motion to revoke his bail on the grounds. That he uh, that he was trying to get witnesses to perjure themselves, uh, people he worked people he worked with in the Habsburg Group to to uh, use in, to wait. Is it really called the represent Habsburg Ukraine? Group? Yeah, they were really called the Habsburg. Jesus group. Christ! Uh, yeah, Got um, real weak chins. Absolutist monarchy. <laughs> That's awesome. He's not How even are hiding people it. people so bad at this? Like, I mean, before yeah. we get into it, like, I mean, does he not have, I mean, I guess Michael Cohen's a lawyer, but like. No, 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 no. Unrelated. He did. He, my, Paul Manafort would never hire Michael yeah. Cohen. <laughs> Paul Manafort hires excellent attorneys and then does things like upload his encrypted messages to the cloud. Yeah. And um, text witnesses to say like, hey, I understand you're going to be testifying against me. Don't do yeah. that, please. I mean, I mean, I mean basically <sighs> what happens is he's he's under one of the things in his indictment is that he's accused of violating the the FARA, where you have to register as a foreign agent if you're representing a foreign government in the United States. And so he was saying the work he did for the Ukraine with this company was only in Europe. And 
So the charge is that he was actually working in both Europe and the United States. And after he gets indicted, he basically calls and texts his former co-workers in this company. And he says, now, as you'll recall, we use this company to do work in Europe. Right. And he sends them an article in which he's being accused of using the company to do the work in the United States. And both of these people, when they get the messages, pretty much immediately go to the FBI (laughs) and say, I think he's trying to get me to perjure, (laughs) perjure myself. And that's why he and his colleague, colleague, uh, Kilimic or Kiliminic, who worked with him who worked with him in this company, like they just called him and they called his, I think they called his wife and they, they called this other person's co other coworker. And so like, there was this big trail where he was, they were, they were contacting them on confide, uh, this encrypted thing. So other than the fact that the people receiving the messages kept them, Right. Like they they were sent encrypted, but the recipients kept them and turned them over. And then Manafort literally had the metadata uploaded to the cloud, which they then which was all part of the federal subpoena. So they saw that he sent all of these messages and made all of these phone calls. So, like, I mean, though, this isn't a huge surprise. Paul Manafort in the original indictment. Uh, where they were going back and forth drafting these papers. The reason why they got caught is because he kept emailing Gates <laughs> like PDFs and asking him to convert it to Word so he could edit. This was they were this is when he was trying. Oh, no, this wasn't. This was for the loan documents. He was he was falsifying his net worth. And so and so he took a bank statement and he he emailed it. He emailed it to Gates and he's like, could you put this in a Word document? Then he edited the Word document and mailed it back to Gates and said, can you make this a PDF? Again? <laughs> I missed that. Paul Manafort refusing so, to buy Adobe Acrobat only uses yep. Adobe Reader. Solidarity with Paul Manafort. <laughs> Adobe Acrobat licenses are way too expensive. And this is a problem. <laughs> That we are finally that, addressing. You are you are indicted on the grounds of being old <laughs> and not being able to properly edit things on your own computer. And so and so that's it. So they went right to they went right to the feds. And so the feds the feds went to court and they were like, all right, we gotta revoke his bail. Do we think Manafort's going to actual literal jail now? Is that actually on the table for Absolutely, you know, I think he's going to jail. Oh yeah. He's going to a oh, yeah. He's going to go to like a a four star minimum security white well, collar crime. Well, not pending crime. trial. Mm-hmm. Not, right. pending. not pending trial. This is this is this is like if they revoke his bail, they're not going to send him to club. Yeah, fans. it's like yeah. like in, like, in cash gonna, bail except for Paul Manafort. Like he, yeah, he Christina, that's me. <laughs> yep, I agree. <laughs> no, they should. Well, the problem is Manafort can pay cash bail, so they, we should end cash bail and just right. Well, so no, in Manafort except for actually, what he did was he he has pledged as his bond. He has pledged. Because it's a ten, he was given a ten million dollar. Uh, he bail was set at ten million dollars, and he has pledged like eleven million dollars worth of real estate yeah. uh, in Florida, Brooklyn, and Virginia. I think some of which he like co-owns with his daughter. So yeah, one of the properties he co-owns with his daughter. Holy all shit. of them he co-owns with his wife. 
And so he has pledged all of that. And it's an open question. Even if they revoke his bail, they may not forfeit the Mm -hmm. bond. I don't actually know the law behind when the when the bond is forfeit. But as like, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, Ken White Popat said online is the fact that they were able to get him after filing the motion to revoke his bond. They then got a grand jury to actually indict him for Mm -hmm. it. And so it's like not only are they articulating probable cause in the bond revocation memo, but we can prove they have convinced a grand jury to indict him for it, which seems like at the very least a rebuttable presumption of probable cause. And so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how gay I didn't get to read. uh, I didn't get to read Manafort's response to the bail revocation motion, unfortunately, even though it's out there. Um, But it doesn't look great. (laughs) The indictment does not look great for his chances. It rules that like he's getting caught. He got caught not uh, registering as a foreign agent, which like 30% of the economy of Washington, D.C. is people doing lobbying work for foreign governments Mm -hmm. who haven't registered as lobbyists for foreign governments because they're doing work that's like just barely outside of the definition of lobbying. And just like, how do you get caught doing this? How dumb are you? That you can get well, actually get caught when the answer is you were yeah the answer is you're Paul Manafort. He thinks he's a quite no, he thinks he's a no, no, he's not dumb. The, the answer is you work you work you work for Donald Trump and you get scrutinized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What happens is someone actually reviews your papers. Yeah, <laughs> like like the reason none of them get caught is because it all happens without anyone being under investigation. But once someone puts the microscope on you, I mean, one of the funniest things is like the office for for the registration of foreign agents probably has like one intern who <laughs> who would receive like three documents a year. And then as soon as Paul Manafort got indicted, it looked like the scene at the end of Miracle on 34th Street where they're dumping the fucking letters to Santa on the judge's bench <laughs> because like everyone in Washington is now like, oh, is that the standard? Well, then apparently I'm a far representing a, I'm an agent for a foreign government and I better tell the government now. And it's like, so now they're being deluged with like everyone in Washington finally copping to the fact that they're actually a foreign lobbyist. Which is fine because, you know, where this Washington, D.C. is the center of a world bestriding colossus of empire. So like, obviously there are supplicants <laughs> from our proxy states in Washington, D.C. to be like, please don't nuke us, Mr. President. You know, like uh, it makes sense. But just I mean, everyone everyone thought that Pizzagate was going to take down John Podesta. But this is what took down Tony Podesta. (laughs) Like like his like he the original the original Manafort indictment showed that Tony Podesta was one of the people who Manafort was kind of laundering all of this influence through. And when that came out, Tony Podesta's, the Podesta group just blew up. (laughs) You know, like no one, like they just had to just shutter their doors and kind of slink away, uh, embarrassed about the whole thing. Pizza continues unabated. Yeah, slink away into the pizza basements of Washington, (laughs) D.C. But the answer is uh, Manafort is in trouble. 
And uh, I hope he spends a long time. Yeah. I hope that the federal government becomes a co-tenant with his uh, with his wife of all of his properties. That's uh, actually called a not a co-tenant, but oh a- Jesus Christ! <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't actually know the answer. Everyone, to that question. everyone, be quiet as Christina corrects uh, James because she just studied this uh, in uh, her bar review. Tenancy by the entirety, bitch. No, it's nice. not. No, it's not because you don't have the unity of marriage. Tenancy by the. You're wrong. If you say that on the bar exam, you're going to fail. Don't say that. I'm going to fail the it's bar a joint exam tenancy. anyway. I'm a guys, huge idiot. Guys, guys, you're all wrong because the government wouldn't be co-owners. They're going to fucking take the thing. Like, <laughs> take it will be the government's yeah. no, they're, they're property. Just gonna, it's it's, it's going to be, you know, Paul Manafort owning the property or Paul Manafort's daughter owning the property with the federal Black government. Blackacre. The good news, though, is it's actually mine since I filed a quitclaim deed on all of Manafort's properties. That's not how it works. Oh, my God. Thank God no one actually. No, it is. That is, no, that is, that is classic sovereign citizen maneuver is you put a quitclaim deed in the uh, in the uh, clerk's office. Right, and then you claim well, I, I, do th- I do think, though, that Manafort, like if he's if he's in jail for like more than 48 hours, he is going to be full sovereign citizen by the end. Yes. Of given, given his. Actions. Oh, yeah. And that's, well, that's going to be Peter, Peter will be representing him. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank God no one actually listens to this show to learn about like what the law actually says about things like joint property. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. The day the day I have an actual real property podcast is the day that I am being lowered. For your into information, the I actually booked property, so suck my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. On that note. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't understand any of that. All right. Um, OK, so uh, with that, I would like to thank everyone for listening to episode 16 of Mike Dicta and the panel today, Ames hi. and Christina and James. You don't have to say hi oh. again. This is the end. <laughs> Let it In case hi. you forgot what my voice sounds like. <laughs> so thank you to Ames, Christina, James, Mark. I am your host, Charles Starr. Thanks again for listening to Mike Dicta. Good night. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye, Bye everyone. Depressing. All right, Depressing. Stop. stop.